The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. I'll tell you, Hyundai makes a great car, but they are totally changing the car buying experience. The future of car buying is now. Customers feel far more confident, respected, in control, and at ease, all because of Hyundai's Shopper Assurance Program. It saves customers time, lessens and eliminates haggling, it streamlines the process, reduces the worry, and revolutionizes the car buying experience that consists of four pillars. One, when you use the Hyundai Shopper Assurance Program, you get transparent pricing, knowing that the price is always better than guessing. You got a flexible test drive. They'll bring the car to you, and you can drive it when you choose. It can't be more convenient than that. They'll streamline the purchase. No sitting in offices while they print up page after page of forms. It'll all be done simply and online. And you get a three-day worry-free exchange. Peace of mind. If you don't love the vehicle, you simply bring it back. That's the way to buy a car. Hyundai makes such a great car that they can do this. They understand that by improving the buyer experience, they're giving you a product that's going to make you come back again and again. So, it's true, they did it. Car buying is now made easier, and it's possible with Hyundai Shopper Assurance. Go to HyundaiUSA.com slash Shopper Assurance. That's HyundaiUSA.com slash Shopper Assurance. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Here we are, another episode of No Excuses with me, John Taffer. Thanks for tuning in. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed, you should do so at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Well, this was a pretty crazy week. What did you guys think of Bar Rescue this week? So it was a really classic case of a guy who made a few dollars with a bar, buys a second bar, Believe it or not, that piece of crap little looked like a trailer in the middle of nowhere. He had over $500,000 invested in this thing. All he sold was beer. Think about this. All he sold was beer, and all he lost money on was beer. So he sold beer. He had no kitchen, no liquor. He had no real entertainment, so to speak. So what he did is he lost money on the one product that was his own, and I showed it in minutes when I walked in. And it's really interesting. To think how somebody would own a business, write a check month after month after month with the losses being so obvious to him that he himself drank bottled beer, not draft beer, is really remarkable. Those are the moments where I wonder if I should be rescuing this person or not. And I'd be curious to hear your comments. He was a good guy. And when I go to do a bar rescue, what a lot of you don't know is I have to rally for someone. Sometimes when I show up to do a bar rescue, the owner is such a jerk, I don't want to do it for him or her. Or the manager is such a jerk, I don't want to do it for him or her. Or the staff are such jerks, I don't want to do it for them. So there's got to be somebody that I fight for. In the case of this bar, it was really the staff. And it was trying to come through for the staff and, and create 
another legacy for a bar that's been around for a very, very long time. So I don't do it often. I kept the name, reinvented the business, reignited the owner, I think, put in a better system, and I hear he's doing really well. But there's a story to be told here. If you're not going to manage the most basic elements of a business, get out of the business. J.C. Penney once said, if you don't take care of your customers, you'll have no customers. But if you don't take care of your business, you'll have no business. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Aretha Franklin for a minute. Boy, I grew up listening to her music. And, you know, there's one thing that Aretha had that we all need to have in everything that we do. And that's heart. Man, her passion was incredible. She was called the Queen of Soul. And a lot of us think of that as soul music. I don't think about that as soul music. I think about that as soul, her soul. And she came out of gospel music, a very emotional music type, came back with very strong religious background. And and that excitement and passion that she had for gospel really made her the queen of soul. And she'll really, really be missed. (laughs) I'm picturing her in the Blues Brothers. If you haven't (laughs) pictured that scene in a while, she was pretty funny in the Blues Brothers. She, She beat the hell out of the guy who played her husband. You know what's interesting is after 50 years, there's a dispute within the Beatles about who wrote the song in my life. Now, apparently in an interview on television, John Lennon said he wrote it. But yet more recently, Paul McCartney said he wrote it. When you think about it, two billionaires are bickering over one of God knows how many songs they wrote. And for some reason, the credit is still important to them. So I find it interesting that it was important enough for Lennon to dispute McCartney and say he wrote it. And then all these years later, when John is buried and gone, that Paul would step up and say, no, no, no. John didn't remember right. I wrote it. So some company whose name I won't mention, went and did all sorts of research analysis. I'm talking pages and pages and pages. And they analyzed timetables and language and all these mathematicians from Harvard put together an entire assessing authorship of Beatles song analysis uh, by Asian classification modeling from bags of words, representations, and all of this. And they go through the entire process and son of a gun. Paul, you were wrong. John wrote the frickin' song, so give the man the credit. You'd think they'd be able to walk away from things like that and be a bit more gracious sometimes. You want to talk about gracious? Hats off to Ann Hauser-Busch. I'm about to tell you about the coolest bar promotion of all time, and if you're living in Cleveland, this is really, really cool. Bud Light, and this is not a spot, this is not an ad, Bud Light is putting 10 victory fridges in sports bars around Cleveland. I'm looking at a picture of one. They're cool. They're blue Bud Light refrigerators. They're packed with Bud Light, and they're locked. And when Cleveland scores its first touchdown, they all become unlocked, and anybody in the bar gets a free beer. I think that is a really cool promotion. I look back at the years of the promotions that we did to pack bars. And in some states, you can't give away alcohol like that. But I remember we would do our our drink and drown where you'd buy a mug at the door and you could drink as much as you wanted to. And obviously we had to regulate how much people drank, so we weren't liable. But that that was one version of a free beer one. We used to do quarter beers (laughs) where we would do 25-cent beers until the first person peed. And we'd put guards in the bathrooms, guards outside in the bushes around the parking lot. And the first guy or female who peed, we'd bring them out to the middle of the bar, hold their arms up in the air, and everybody would have to curse. And and beer went back to full price. So we've done all sorts of great beer promotions over the years, but that's a really, really good one. So 
a Colorado school district, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this online, just slashed school to a four-day school week. Imagine if you were 9, 10, 12, 15 years old, and your school system calls home and says, guess what? We've canceled school on Monday. School now runs only Tuesday through Friday from 8.30 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon. So that's the deal. Teachers, believe it or not, now get the Mondays off. They have to come in to work one Monday a month, but only half a day. So the teachers now are, are, are getting three and a half days off additionally in a month. The kids are going to school one day less a month. And the school district is now feeding one day less a month, has administrative employees one day less a month. To make a long story short, the Colorado School District is attempting to save a million dollars with this experiment. Okay, well, it's sort of. It's unfortunate that people get time off that they're paid for, but that's a separate discussion. But what's interesting is all the parents are freaking out because now they have to either provide daycare, change their work schedule, feed, otherwise deal with their child for another day of the week. So they're screaming foul. The million dollars that the school district saved, you're now putting on us. So it's an interesting argument. And when things like that happen and the state starts to push off its financial responsibilities on the citizens, uh, uh, it starts to be a reverse spend approach. And I don't even know how to define it. But our taxes go up. Our school taxes go up. If our taxes go up and they reduce services and then they transfer more expenses to us, I think that's the triple whammy. If I was in Colorado, I'd be screaming pretty loud right now. It doesn't seem quite right. So who's heard about what's going on at Maryland? So apparently basic medical procedures weren't found in Maryland, University of Maryland, and a 19-year-old defensive lineman died. And there's there's a, a huge uproar over it and the whole premise of strength coaching and, and how aggressive should a coach be. And I think that's a very important topic. Football is important in college. Football is important in high school. But uh, uh, at what point is the line drawn? At what point is the risk greater than the potential of the accomplishment? And that's a really, really interesting point. And when I was thinking about risk and and reading that article, I stumbled on an entire MBA course that you can take online. This isn't an ad. And it's really, really cheap. You can take it online. And what's amazing to me is it teaches everything from starting a business to running a business. It has 63 lectures, seven and a half hours of content, and they claim that you can get an entire MBA course uh, uh, online in just a few weeks. Uh, It's called Business Career Coaching, which is something I stumbled on online. If you're looking to grow and you're looking to do it on your own schedule, that might be the right way to do it. I was looking at some funny stories online, and I saw a couple of ones that were really funny, and they they turned me on to (laughs) remembering some of the stories and things that I had done years ago. And I'm about to tell you guys a few things that you're almost going to say, Taffer, no way, no way, no way. Well, I'm reading this story in, in, in a publication, Short Funny Stories, and it was a story about a girl went to a friend's house to a party, and she didn't like the guy, and she didn't like the party, so she took a bunch of tuna fish, and she went all over the house, and she stashed tuna fish and curtain rods and things like that to make the house smell. And, and she came back weeks later, and the house, in fact, stunk. And it reminded me of a story. Years ago, I was vice president of a hotel company based in Chicago. And we ran a bunch of Holiday Inn-type hotels. And I won't say what brand the hotel is that I'm talking about. But the general manager of this particular hotel 
had a flu and was in the hospital for a few days. His name was Tim. I won't mention his last name, of course. When you hear the story, you'll know why. So I'm sitting in Tim's office at his hotel, babysitting his property as vice president of the company while he is uh, getting himself well. And I'm flipping through a bunch of papers on his desk, and I see what's called as a banquet event order, a document that has a wedding listed. And this is Friday morning, and it says there's a wedding Saturday night. So I pick up the phone. I call down to the kitchen. I say, Chef, do you know about a wedding Saturday night? He goes, no, I don't have anything about a wedding Saturday night. I call somebody else in the catering department. Do you know about a wedding? I say, no, I don't like that. So I get on the phone. I call this GM. And he's, oh, yeah, it's, it's a wedding. I, didn't I process the paperwork through? Well, now I got a wedding in about 18 hours. We don't have the food. We don't have the drinks. We don't have anything. So I hustle and hustle and hustle. Fortunately, I have a couple of other hotels in that town with my company. So I can grab food from one, booze from another, glassware from another. I'm hustling like crazy to put this event together. So I put the wedding together, and as I'm putting the wedding together, I read in a contract that doesn't mention a champagne toast. So I call this guy again in the hospital, and I say, hey, Tim, it doesn't mention a champagne toast. I've never seen a wedding without a champagne toast. He goes, no, 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 no. Groom's father specifically said no champagne toast. Okay, you sure? Yep, I'm sure. All righty. I got to set up the room for 225 people. It only holds 180. I got to pack in so many tables, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is a girl's wedding. This is important. I can't screw this up. No matter what this GM did, I got to fix it. So I figure out a way to pack the tables into the room. Now the wedding cake arrives about two hours before the event. And the wedding cake is in a big box, a smaller box, a smaller box, and a smaller box. And we go to put it in this freight elevator. We're going up the freight elevator to the banquet facility on the second floor. The freight elevator gets stuck. We can't get the cake out of the elevator for the wedding. So we're trying to pass the cake through the hatch in the ceiling of the elevator, the emergency exit. And this is a dirty freight elevator. Well, the small top box fits. The next box fits. The next box fits. The big box won't fit. But if we take the cake out of the box, the round cake will fit, but the square box won't. So we take the cake out of the box. We're passing it through the hatch. The cake slides, slams into the back of the elevator. Now it's about a 200-degree cake. The entire back of it is completely flattened. We pass the cake through the hatch. We walk into the room. We realize now we have to reset the entire room because the cake can't be in a room because it's flat. It's got to be in a corner. So we move the cake to the corner, reset the entire room. I get everything together. Finally, the family walks in the front door of the room, and the father says to me, where are the glasses for the champagne toast? <laughs> so we pulled off that wedding. We made whipped cream and filled in the back of the cake. I got 80 cases of champagne from another hotel on the other side of town, and I pulled it off. The next morning, I'm sitting in this gentleman's office, and I took a bunch of raw shrimp, <laughs> and I d dropped them in a couple of his desk drawers. A couple of days later, I let him come back to work. I let him sit in a stink, and then I fired him, and that was the story of the wedding in Evansville, Indiana. <laughs> you know, sometimes in the hospitality business, there's complete chaos in the back of the house. But the bride and the groom don't know a thing. And that bride and the groom didn't know a thing. And we, and we pulled off uh, what was a great wedding from a terrible situation. I was driving to work today. And I'm driving down the Las Vegas Strip. And I'm in front of Hotel Encore. And I saw something I've never seen before. It's hot out there. It's about 110 degrees out there. And some guy's walking down the sidewalk barefoot. And it's obvious that his feet are burning because he's jumping up and down. He's trying to find some place to sit and there's no place to sit. 
So I'm watching him as I'm sitting at a traffic light. He sits down on the sidewalk to lift his feet in the air, and now he burns his ass. And you can see he's going from one cheek to the other as he's holding his feet up, but he can't hold his feet up and be on one cheek. So the other foot, finally, the guy stands up, his feet are burning, his ass is burning, and he took off down the strip, and I haven't seen him since. (laughs) Uh, Boy, when I was looking at that Budweiser promotion, it made me think of years ago when we used to do all sorts of crazy bar promotions. And one that we did was the Velcro wall, which we stole from the David Letterman show. And we took pieces of plywood, four of them, and we built a, a wall 16 feet high by eight feet wide, and we covered it all with male Velcro, and we created a jumpsuit, and we covered that in female Velcro. And the, and the customer would jump on a little trampoline, go in the air, and land up against a wall. Well, we didn't really experiment with it. We tried it, and the first time he did it, he jumped about eight feet up in the air, went up against the Velcro wall, and we couldn't get him down. We had to use spatulas, and it took us about an hour and a half to get him down. <laughs> And that was the uh, uh, the great promotion of its time. You know, when I think about uh, Aretha and I think about the um, various situations going on, and we're approaching a one-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, and they're about to re-air the Puerto Rican episode. And if you haven't seen that episode, you really should. I think it's the most important television work I've ever done. You know, in moments like this, it, it makes us think that, that all we have is today, and we hope we have tomorrow. You know, when I take a look at the uh, stuff that I've been talking about today, I see how Aretha's gone. I see how Lennon is gone and McCartney, and there's a little bicker over a song that's being written. And I realize that we aren't assured of tomorrow. All we have is today. And if we don't take action today to bring smiles to our own faces, the people around us, to make our lives better in some fashion, there might not be a tomorrow. So counting on tomorrow, in my view, is foolish. We have to count on today and plan for tomorrow. My next guest is all about that. Terry Fader took so many no's and turned them into yeses, winding up with one of the greatest careers a ventriloquist has ever had in America. Wait till you hear Terry's story. We'll be right back after this. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Man, when it comes to technology, I am surrounded by it here. And I've learned over the years there's a huge difference between consumer grade and business class PCs. It's the same difference as there is from an economy seat in an airplane or a first class seat. That's why I go to HP business class PCs. First of all, the performance is far better. The support is far better with 24-7, 365 dedicated service. Software and security is far superior than any consumer product. The graphic packages, the streamlined experience for professional graphic designers is far superior and a reliability, forget about it. They're tested for 115,000 hours just to make sure that they're durable. When you need a PC, go business class PCs. Go to hp.com slash taffer. Get an extra 10% off on select 8th generation Intel-powered HP PCs with the code TAFFER until September 17th at hp.com slash TAFFER. You knew the risks when you decided to drive drunk. There could be a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But that didn't stop you, did it? You knew you could get arrested. You could incur huge legal expenses, and you could possibly even lose your job. 
You were well aware of the consequences of driving drunk. But one thing's for sure. You were wrong when you said it was no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. This message brought to you by NHTSA. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Weeks ago, I went to a uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights game, and, and I had the honor to be involved in a celebrity pre-opening event. And Terry Fader was there, who's a headline performer uh, at the Mirage, one of the hottest acts in Vegas. And I got a chance to spend some time with him. Since then, we became friends, and I've seen his show. And I couldn't wait to get Terry on. And here's why, Terry. I want everybody to hear this from me before you even say hello. So many of us in life say we should have done this, but we didn't. Boy, I wish I could have done that. Or, gee, I could do this or I could do that. Terry went on America's Got Talent, put his butt out of line, and turned it into an amazing career that we'll talk about in a moment. Terry's the guy who didn't say no. Terry's the guy who said yes. He's the guy who took a chance and made that step that so many of us don't make. Hi, buddy. Hey. So thanks for having me. That's very kind uh, kind words from you. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Terry. You know, your story is a great story, buddy, and, and, and you know, I find it amazing. So when, when you and I were talking the other night and I got a chance to see your show, which if, if nobody's gone to, you really have to see Terry's show. What I love about your show, buddy, is it's, it's just great entertainment. There's no lasers. There's no high-tech explosions. There's none of the kinds of high-tech things that make weak shows great. Your show is great without any of those things. And I think that's really special. And, and it speaks to, to your talent and what you've created. But you said something to me really powerful. You told me that you've been wanting to do this your whole life. Yeah, I have. You know, and I, I very few people are have a singular focus. And and I here I'm talking about singular focus with me. I have I have ADD. So my I mean, my brain and I, when you see my show, you'll understand how I'm able to incorporate ADD into my act because I can literally do about 10 things at one time uh, flawlessly without any <laughs> without any hesitation. However, um, when I say singular focus, I mean I, there was never a time in my life ever that I wanted to do anything other than entertain from the time I was a child. And, and um, you know, I know how to hard, work hard, you know, because my parents had a janitorial business when I was growing up. And they would drop us kids off at a building and we'd have to clean the, you know, seven story building, uh, just three children. And uh, while the other what the parents were cleaning another building. So I know how to work hard, but it just was something that, uh, you know, I wanted to entertain. So I spent the countless hours cleaning buildings, practicing and getting myself prepared for my uh, career in entertainment, whether it was ventriloquism, singing. I would write jokes. I'd write routines. I'd create characters all while I was emptying trashes and, and cleaning ashtrays. <laughs> so what was the first character that, that, or first voice that you did? Was it a fictitious character or was it first mimicking someone else? It was actually kind of both. My, my first character that I created, I was 10 years old. I, I found a book on how to be a ventriloquist, and then I bought a puppet at uh, Sears. Uh, that was back in the days when Sears would sell puppets, <laughs> these little ventriloquist puppets. And it just had a string coming out of the back of the neck. The head didn't move, but I was able to take the puppet apart and put a, a stick on it so that I could actually turn his head. And it gave me a little bit more uh, range. And I put a, one of my dad's old rings that I found. I asked him if I could use it, and he had it in a drawer, and he let me take it. And so I took it and tied it onto the uh, the end of the string, and I used my finger to uh, to pull the string, and, and I could turn his head. And it gave me a little bit more freedom. But um, – my first routines were all routines from comedy albums that I had when I was younger. So 
I was doing, you know, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy routines, and I was doing Jose wow. Jimenez. Do you remember Jose Jimenez? My name Jose Jimenez. My name Jose Jimenez. <laughs> so I would do those routines with, you know, I would do, I would do the entire routines with my puppet doing the voices. And uh, and then, of course, they would sing. So I had a little uh, lion puppet that I called Jack O'Mikeson, and he would uh, sing Jack Michael Jackson's uh, Jackson 5 songs. So, wow. so I was... Yeah, so I was always doing things like that, and um, and and I would be focusing on you know listening to the radio, whoever was on, uh, whatever the popular songs were on, as I was cleaning these buildings, and I would sing along without moving my lips, so I could practice uh, my craft, the one that I wanted to do, because I did not, you know, my dream was not to have a janitorial business. My dream was to uh, was to be able to uh, entertain for a living. So when you're driving in your car, you wanted to sing along, but you didn't want to look like 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 a, a like a fool. So you learned how to do it without moving your lips. That's true too. Yes. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, you know how in te- when we're teenagers, we we don't want to look foolish. And uh, nowadays, I wouldn't care. But as a teenager, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want somebody to know I'm singing. So I would sing along to the radio without moving my lips, so no one would know I was singing. <laughs> you you know what's amazing about your acting, your talent, to be Terry, is I've worked with Fred Travelina over the years. He's a great singing impressionist you know Fred I'm sure I've worked with Scott Record who's another great one uh uh-uh. but all of them move their mouths so <laughs> sure I mean they put on a wig they put on an outfit they turn around and, and they nail that voice that you know that that the the impression that they're creating and they can move a little like the individual but what's amazing to me is you sound just you do exactly the same thing while you're moving your your puppet and you don't move your lips at all it's a remarkable thing to watch and the power of your voice without moving your lips really blows me away. So now you're a young kid. I'm guessing you're doing these shows for your parents, your parents, friends, things like that in your house, right? I'm guessing. Yes. Yes. I was, I was always the center of attention and always the, the kid who was doing, uh, Oh man, I loved, (laughs) I just loved, uh, entertaining. So, you know, you put me in there. I was, I was voted a class clown literally every year of my entire schooling. So, uh, so I, I, because I was the guy that was always making people laugh. I was always able to get out of um, fights because I could get the bullies to laugh. I would uh, tell jokes, and and that's when I learned self-deprecating humor, which is which works great for a uh, for a ventriloquist because when the puppet makes fun of you, there's nothing funnier than that. And so when when the bullies would would um, make fun of me and call me puny and blah blah, I'd be like, I would make jokes about how puny I was and how and what how weak I was, you know. Um, and then I'd get them laughing and they would basically leave me alone because I think a lot of times in, in, with a bully situation, it's that they're looking for a fight. They're looking for a confrontation. And when you're, when they're laughing, it's very hard for them to confront you. Boy, I've done the same thing in my life with humor. I think humor is one of the most important tools that we have in life, even in business. Do you want to be partners with someone who has no sense of humor? I mean, oh, right. No, <laughs> so, so you, that's a great story. So you took a liability really turned it into an asset and just yes. worked the moment. And, and I'm guessing those were the days that you really learned your chops when you were young, timing, what to say, how to say it, how to read people's body language, look in their face. You had to learn all of that at that time. I did. Yes. Yes. I had to do all of that. And, and it's, it's really kind of a thing where, um, it's an organic process. You know, you don't, you don't sit down and say, all right, I'm going to start working on timing. I mean, I guess some people do, but it wasn't, that's not how I did it. I, I just kind of did it through learning what works and what doesn't. And I found, and I, I began to find even as a child that, you know, it's kind of remarkable that, um, uh, that 
you can you can pause a little bit longer for something and it will and it will get a different reaction so as you're learning these these different techniques and different things you're like oh my gosh if i if i pause for a moment um you know a little bit longer i'll be able to you know i'll be able to do uh, I'll be able to change the, the dynamics of this, or maybe it'll get a bigger laugh, or maybe, you know, so um, it's pretty, pretty amazing to be able to learn those types of things. Some people just don't get it, but I think natural gifted uh, uh, entertainers, which I am and, and was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like tooting my own horn. It's just, I was, you are. I was naturally uh, a, uh, always an entertainer. It was just something that was in my blood. So, so when I was young, uh, uh, um, I was a speaker. And I always gave public speeches. And what happened to me when I was young is my mother was the bully for me. So I had to learn how to make her smile. Same kind of thing in a different kind of a way, Tar. But I, I, I had a, my father. My father was a bully as well. And I and by making him laugh, I was able to diffuse many, many situations. That's uh, so I know I know exactly what you're referring to. Yeah. yeah so, so, you know, living our lives that way, it started becoming second nature, the ability to make people laugh, the right. re reading of the need when it's time to make people laugh. So did you make a living as a ventriloquist before America's Got Talent? I did. And I had actually kind of grown um, in my ability as a ventriloquist uh, pretty remarkably. And and I, I was 20 years. I, I started a band because I wanted to sing because I, I knew that I was a singer. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, kind of, I wanted to sing almost as much. My, my real goal in life, though, was to be a ventriloquist. I wanted to be a professional ventriloquist. And I would look at people like, um, uh, you know, uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and Paul Winchell and think, OK, that's, sure. I want to do that. But I also could sing. So I started a band, but I, I mixed ventriloquism and singing. And I would I had this band. We were a country rock band. We'd go all over the country. And every 10 minutes, I would pull out a puppet. You know, I had this Elvis Presley puppet, and I would pull out an Elvis puppet, or I'd pull out my country puppet, and he'd sing some Garth Brooks or some or some uh, Dwight Yoakam. And then I would pull out another puppet, or you know, and I would do. Uh, I, I used to do this Michael Jackson impression. You saw Michael Jackson in my show. I, I did. Um, and I would I would be Michael Jackson. I'd put on a wig and sunglasses, and then my country puppet would kind of be like, "What the heck is this?" You know, he was so. <laughs> it was just a funny a funny idea that how a how an old country singer would would react to Michael Jackson. Um, and and so I would uh, so we would do all of this. And then uh, about in 2000, I think it was maybe 2001, I just said, you know, I, I think it's time I was in my I think I was in my 30s. Uh, yeah, and I said, it's really time for me to just pursue this dream. I want to be a professional ventriloquist uh, full time. And, wow. and then I, I would play fairs and schools and I was making an OK living. I mean, I was never going to get rich and famous and I certainly was never going to you know get all my bills paid off doing what I was doing. But I was uh but I was able to um, to do what I loved and, and master your craft and make a decent living. And so I was out there doing doing this for uh, for many, many, many years before America's Got Talent. And I think so, when I turned 40, I gave up the dream of having my own Vegas show because I had had been rejected so many times. And the uh, the people in Vegas had told me, you're just not you're never going to make it in Vegas. It's just not Vegas is not right for you. And so I was like, well, uh, you know, I always I've been dreaming of it since I was 14. And then uh, America's Got Talent changed all that. So when you went on, who, did somebody come up to you and say, you need to do America's Got Talent? Or was that a determination you made on your own? No, it was everybody came up and told me. Um, the interesting thing about that was that I was I was performing at fairs all over the country. And um, uh, so during the, the summer, during the fair season, you know, you go in and you play the Iowa State Fair and the Minnesota State Fair. Yep. The Wisconsin State Fair. 
And that first year that it was on, I didn't even know anything about it. And I mean, every time I would finish a show, people, I would get barraged with people coming up and going, have you seen this show, America's Got Talent? You need to go on it. You need to go on it. You need to go on it. So unbeknownst to me, they were – these same people were emailing NBC and telling them they saw this amazing ventriloquist and that they need to get me on America's Got Talent. So I actually got a call from uh, from NBC asking if I would – they said, listen, this is – it's so remarkable. You know, We're getting all of these calls about this, uh, about this guy, and uh, are you, would you go on the show? And, I, and I'm like, sure. <laughs> you know? Wow. So they let me audition, and uh, you know, I, of course I had to audition like anybody else, mm-hmm. um, but, but they, did, they did actually contact me and call me about that. So Wow. So were you terrified when you did it the first time? I mean, you've been no, on stage. No, you've been- no, I, I really wasn't. And the reason I wasn't was because um, they, I just am so used to doing this. You know, I had done it for 20 years, almost every single day. So I just got up and did what I always do. And here's a different thing, though, about me than, than many other people. And that is that I, I like to, um, I, I like to perform. So I would always carry one of my puppets with me, um, I would carry a puppet with me while I was uh, uh, if I went to a party, I'd have puppets in my in my in my trunk, the trunk of my car. And I would say, hey, tell them that I tell them that uh, I want to perform if they let me. So I was used to getting up in front of living rooms and, and performing for people. So it was not hard to get up in front of the six people or the three judges. You know, it was really easy to do because I was I had kind of trained myself to do it. I just loved to entertain. So Even how now, many? I, I just went on vacation to uh, to um, we went to Italy and France and we were on a tour group and we had about 40 people in the tour group. And I had a puppet in my suitcase and I said, if they want, I'll do a little show for them. I got up and did a show for for the for all of them. Uh, acapella. I don't need music or anything. I like having music. <laughs> Uh, but it's just it's it's a passion. I love 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 doing it. You know, wow. so it's not, it's not work for me. It's play. I'm the same way. If they weren't paying me, I'd still do it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're blessed with the opportunity to do that. Okay, so how many appearances on America's Got Talent until you win? I did about uh, I think it was five, maybe six, um, maybe six songs, five appearances, and um, and and you know, I just it was so it it just was not. Um, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared. I, I had seen how people responded to this stuff all through um, my, you know, the last maybe five years of, uh, you know, I didn't really mix the marry the, the ventriloquism and impressions until later, um, until later on in my, in my career. So, um, that's a large part of the formula that I think has made you so successful. So you uh, no, had, it actually was. So I had already seen though, how people responded to me. So I was like, yeah, you know, people really like this. So I, I know they're going to, I know America's going to love this. I didn't think I'd win the show for crying out loud. I mean, that's, that's that was my next question. So oh. after the, after the first night, you go back to your hotel room. What'd you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, well I thought that went really well. My goal was to get on the show, uh, get on two to three episodes. If I was lucky, make a DVD of all the judges saying really good things about me and my appearances and then using it to sell my, my show and, and make it easier to book and maybe raise my prize. You know, so, I, so well, you're, you were hoping for a promo video out of the deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it. So was there any point, the third, fourth appearance when you went back to your hotel room and said, wow, I got this, I'm going to win no. this. 
never. No, I was I was the guy that was convinced the other guy was going to win until right. until they said my name. No one was more stunned. I was gobsmacked when they said my name. Well, I watched and, the video last night, and that was my question because you were obviously shocked. I just wanted to know if that was as oh, real. Oh no, that as was totally book. real. I one hundred percent thought they were going to say the other guy's name. I didn't know what to do. And and the funny thing about that is I wasn't one hundred percent sure I heard my name. So I didn't want to like make a fool out of myself and get up and start celebrating. Because, but then I thought, I, I just, and then I turn and I see my name in my peripheral vision and behind me, and Jerry Springer puts his arm around me. He was the host, and then the guy who came in, who eventually came in second, that I was convinced was going to win it, he puts his arm around me, and and I, I mean, it just was, I just just never thought it would happen. I just never, I, you know, I I, I didn't and. I mean, I was prepared, you know, I was prepared for it, but good Lord, it was quite so, the... Uh, so it's so a little reality check here. You had given up on having your Vegas show. Mm-hmm. You went into this hoping to get a promo video, right? Yeah. Never yeah. thinking that you were going to win. And from this, you were going to go back on the road with a new promo video and hopefully make a few more dollars uh, yeah. uh, and, and try to advance your career. You, yeah, you, my, my you wind up... Yeah, rich and rich and famous was over at that point, you know. Yes, uh, but sure. you know, this is what I tell people though. You know, I say, look, it's fine to give up on the dream. It's not fine to stop working toward the dream. Right. You know, if, if you believe the dream is over, fine. But as long as you're working for it, literally anything can happen. And I'm living proof of that. Forty-two years old, and I got all my dreams to come true. And you want to know why? It's because I continued to to say, I don't care if I ever get rich and famous. I want to be the be- best ventriloquist in the world. Period. For me. Not for anybody else or for any other reason. I don't want to do it because I want to be rich and famous. I want to do it for my own for my own pride, just because I want to be able to say I'm doing the best I can and I'm the best I can be at that. And well, that's Terry, why- I, I've been doing this for 35 years. I think I've seen everybody in the business. You, my friend, are the best I have ever seen. Well, thank you. So thank I think kind of you that I, no, you've achieved me that. considering the work I put in. <laughs> no, it, you can see the hours that you've spent in front of a mirror, your timing with the puppets, your, even your own body language. I mean, you've got this just so down. It's just so well done. And you can see it, it's so personal to you. It's not mechanical at any point. Your connection with the audience was instant. Okay, so suddenly you win America's Got Talent. When did you realize that you could make it in Vegas? Did Vegas call you? Did you reach out yeah. to them? Did, well, how did that happen? See, there's again, I, I'm a I'm a b- very strong believer in God, and and I mean very strong. I pray before every single show. We get together with my with my backstage crew. We hold we uh, uh, gather around in a circle and pray, and I pray that God uses me to uh, to uh, bless people and to uh, and to you know to have have them feel His Spirit through my performance, and and I just believe that it was orchestrated by by the heavens, God, whatever, if you want to, don't call it God or whatever you call it. And because unbeknownst to me, I had absolutely no idea this was going on behind the scenes all through the season. Now I I did not know that the Mirage was looking for a new headliner. I had no idea. Um, I had come to Vegas and done and done a showcase for some producers and all three of them said, "Uh, no, this will never fly in Vegas. We're just, it's just not right for Vegas, you know? So I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to play Vegas. I did not know, but the but the president of the Mirage and the and the uh, the higher ups at the executives at the MGM had been watching me on America's Got Talent, and the president of the Mirage said, "If he wins, we're going to offer him a contract." And I had no idea that was going on, but that was all happening as as I'm doing this. Now I signed with the Las Vegas Hilton first, 
which was mm-hmm. perfect because what happened was they they got to see what the response of people was. My show in at the Las Vegas Hilton sold out in four hours before there was any promotion at all. No, they had, they didn't put a billboard up. They, they, they nobody even knew it was there. But after I won America's Got Talent, um, the switchboards of like Vegas.com and all that, they were barraged with tens of thousands of calls. When's Terry Fader playing Vegas? When's Terry Fader? So basically, uh, as soon as the show uh, was announced, it immediately sold out. <laughs> so <laughs> so the Mirage gets to come over and see me play to this packed house at the Hilton, uh, getting you know multiple standing ovations. People are going crazy and they're going, yeah, this is our guy. And so, uh, so after I finished with my contract, I had a year that, uh, doing three shows a, a month at, uh, at the Hilton, they, uh, they came over and they said, we want you to play Vegas. And I said, okay, we want you to play the Mirage. And I said, okay. <laughs> Not only did they want you to play the Mirage, they built the Terry Fader theater, the Terry they Fader did. box right. office, the Terry, I mean, half the building is named after you for, which is, I mean, they really committed to your brand and I can see why yes, it's, they did. It's an amazing story, buddy. It's similar to me. You know, when uh, somebody came up to me after a speech and said, you should be on TV. So I wrote up a little treatment. I went to a friend of mine who ran television for Paramount. And he says to me, John, you'll never be on television. You're too old. You're not good looking enough. It'll never happen. Just like you were told, you'll never be on Vegas. I'm now on TV eight years. Your show has been running for nine. <laughs> that so, is, it's really fun because don't you love being the – the guy that people, you know, I used to, I used to read stories about people like me. I mean, I, I never thought this would happen to me, you know, and, and now you're that guy that people point to and use as the example. And I, and I gotta say, I love that. I love, you know, I think the best thing we can possibly do in life is inspire others and to be able to be in a situation and a, and a, a place where others get inspired by what we do is just I feel like it's just the greatest honor, the greatest honor we could possibly have. And uh, and that's what we're here to do is to help other people and to be that inspiration. Wow. 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 <laughs> I agree. It, what, what a blessing. And, you know, what, what's great about it is it's a blessing, but it's also a responsibility. And I love you, Terry, because of the way you accept that responsibility. A, you accept that responsibility but by keeping your faith in what you do which is very important, but the work that you've done through your foundation for the military with exoskeletons for handicapped vets and all your merchandise sales is going to support that. You've really taken your act and really turned it into as much good for people as it could possibly be. I left with a tear in my eye when your show ended and I learned about all the good that you've been doing, Uh, uh, starting with a dummy when you're a little kid, right? A little puppet when you're a little kid. Uh, uh, And now look what you've accomplished. And I think it all comes down to what you just said. You respect what society has given you and you're very responsible about giving it back, buddy. That's why I'm proud to call you my friend. It's the truth. Thank you. That's very, very kind of you to say. I very much appreciate that. Tell us a little bit about the charitable work that you're doing so everybody can hear. Well, I have the the Terry Fader Foundation. It used to be just that it all went to military charities, but we've we've kind of branched out. And and it's it's heavy on the military charity still because I'm very passionate about the military. But we started the Terry Fader Foundation and and, um, we we do a lot of work with uh, with disabled vets, you know, wounded warriors. We do a lot of work with the children of those uh, killed in action. We do a lot of work with um, uh, various military charities, but we also work with uh, 
with first responders, you know, firefighters, police officers, uh, people that are that are injured or killed, you know, the families. We also work with uh, with uh, cancer research for children. We also uh, work with the Nevada Blind Children's Association. Um, and we're expanding that. And 100% of all the uh, profits that I make from selling merchandise, whether it's online, whether it's at my shows, on the road, or at the Mirage, goes to the Terry Fader Foundation and goes to charity. And, and um, you know, I'm just a person who believes I have no desire to be the richest man in the world. I feel like that uh, that if you give back, then then you're, you have a full life. Your life is, is complete, and you're doing what you're meant to do on this planet. Uh, and... So it's very important to me to give back and to uh, and, you know, I've been very blessed. God has blessed me abundantly. And uh, through that abundant blessing, I try to bless others abundantly. Well, here's here's to me the lesson that, that everybody can learn about Terry Fader. You know, you started having fun when you were a kid doing something you loved. You stayed with it. You kept it serious. When people made fun of you, you used it as a tool to get past it. When people told you, no, you'll never be on Vegas, you didn't slow down. When people told you, nah, that wasn't so good, you didn't slow down. Fact of the matter is you fought, really. Uh, uh, think of the hours in cars, in buses, in airplanes, the nights in lousy hotels, all the dues that you've paid to get where you are in spite of all the people who said no. And it won't yeah. happen. And I think you agree with this, Terry, and I think you're the epitome of this. I think the naysayers should just in general get the hell out of the way so the yaysayers can get to work. You agree with that? I, I, I do agree with that, but I also feel like that, that we should use naysayers as, as our springboard. You know, a lot, of my, a lot of my success is because my father told me I, I would never succeed that I could never do this. You know, he told me when I was a kid, uh, you, you can't learn how to yodel. Don't even try. So what did I do? I went and got myself a, uh, uh an album, uh, I, a Roy Rogers album and learn how to yodel. <laughs> you know? so, so while, while naysayers, I agree with you, but you know, but I think by the way to get the naysayers out of the way is by proving them wrong. I completely agree. Uh, 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 I couldn't agree more. You know, Terry, I, I, I look forward to our new friendship. And, and if if you're coming to Vegas and you haven't seen Terry's show, do so. It's a lot of fun. It's the epitome of what one person can do with talent. Yeah, he's got a great band behind him and a beautiful set and all that. But if that band wasn't there, and if it was just Terry and his table on that stage, that show would have still been absolutely fantastic, buddy. And the work that you're doing and your whole success story is really inspirational to me. And I hope my listeners enjoyed it, too. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. This was so and it was such a delight to have you at the show the other day. Uh, I look forward to dinner soon. OK. All right. Thank you. Take care. Ter. I wanted Terry to come on because he inspires me. I remember when somebody said to me, John, you'll never be on television. And here I am on TV eight years later. Terry was told he'll never perform in Las Vegas. He's all wrong. Nine years later, do you know how many tens of thousands of people went to his show in Las Vegas? How much gaming money he created, food and beverage money, how many room nights he sold? Fact of the matter is the lesson from Terry is so simple. Don't take a no. If it's yes to you then it's yes to you. And may the naysayers step aside so the yaysayers can move along. If you're a yaysayer, don't let anybody take your dreams away from you. Take that dream, change it into a goal, and then go do it. Just like Terry did. I saw a show Friday night. It was awesome. 
Had Terry said no and listened to the people around him, he wouldn't be there. But he didn't listen, and he did it anyway. And I think so should you. And we're taking a quick pause for thanks to our sponsor. You know, men have sexual performance issues much more common than you think. Over 25% of new ED cases are guys under 40. And 40% of men by the age of 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. Even the world's greatest actor can't fake one. (laughs) And neither can a couple of reality stars that I know. So why do guys turn to weird solutions or do nothing when they can turn instead to medicine and science? Forhims.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness, and it's just for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat ED. There's no waiting room, no awkward personal doctor visits, no lines. You save hours by going to forhims.com. It's really easy. Ask her a few quick questions, and you'll get the answers that you need. And remember, Severe ED isn't just an issue for rich old guys in bathtubs. It affects men in their 30s and 40s, too. There's no reason why it should affect you. Try Hims for a month today for just $5. We'll get you started for just 5 bucks while supplies last. See the website for full details. And remember, this would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy. Go to forhims.com slash taffer5. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash taffer five for hims.com slash taffer five so my favorite part of the show is coming up that's talking to you the audience if you want to participate all you have to do is send me an email to podcast at john taffer.com and you could be one of the callers and i'd love to talk to you so kc who do we have for today John, we've got, uh, we've got James from Smithtown, New York, who has some behind-the-scenes bar rescue questions. Oh, boy, James. Hi, Mr. Taffer. How are you? Good. Nice to talk to you, James. I understand you're interested in um, why people wear the same clothes on different days. That's actually a really good question. I'm happy to explain it to you. Is that what you're curious about? Yes, sir. And I also wanted to thank you. I, I own a small business, and you've motivated me to make my small business better. Uh, thanks, man. That's you know, hearing that is what really keeps me going after 169 bar rescues. After that many, the next one gets tougher and tougher and tougher. But it's people saying things like that that, that mean the world to me. So thanks, James. I appreciate it. The reason why you'll My see pleasure. people wearing the same clothes is we tell them to. And here's why. Bar rescue is so real that day one, I do my recon, which you see. At the end of day one, what people don't know is the cameras are turned off at the end of recon. We put all the employees in white vans in the parking lot, and I designed the bar that night. The next day they come in, and we'll do staff meetings, training, and I'll be designing the bar with my team as we're doing all the on-camera work. At the end of the second day is stress test. After stress test, we start remodeling, and day three, we do the training in another location. 36 hours later, we come back to the original location, line them up outside in blindfolds, and do the countdown. The reason why we have them wear real clothes is because we don't know where the commercial is going to be because the story isn't fixed, it's not written, or it's not scheduled. So, for example, if the stress test is really crazy, it could run into the third or fourth act because there's a lot going on. We can't have them change clothes too early. For example, if day one, when I go in and do recon, I have a staff meeting that night, I might play that staff meeting as the next day because it happened after I walked in. So sometimes to keep the show honest, we keep them in the same clothes because we don't know what act each scene is going to fall in. 
Honestly, we don't know what's going to happen myself. So if they go from a red shirt to a green shirt and then back to a red shirt, the show gets very confusing. Does that make sense? It certainly does. But that's the reason why is, you know, we don't want them changing back and forth. We put them in one outfit. We tell them to stay in that one outfit. And if the first act runs into the second act or the second act runs into the first act, we don't have to change clothes or do anything like that. I can really follow the reality that way. But thanks for calling, buddy, and good luck with your business. Thank you, sir. So let's uh, go over to Matt, who is in Massachusetts, and uh, he wants some words of advice for someone who says he has a plain life and uh, wants to do more with it, John. How are you, Matt? Hi. I, how's it going? Honor, it's an Hi. honor to speak with you, John. Uh, I'm trying not to geek out. You've, you've been one of my idols for a long time now. Oh, thank you, buddy. So I've kind of lived in my hometown my whole life. I'm 27. Went to school here. I work here. Um, you know, I've just been in this, you know, nine to five rut, living in paycheck to paycheck, paying bills, what have you. And, you know, I'm just wondering what you think like a good step would be to find my passion. So are you living in a place that doesn't provide you with the kind of opportunity to, to get ahead where you want to be? Is it ge- yeah, geography so. that's holding uh, you back or, or is it something else? You know, I think, I think I've just kind of want to branch out, see more of the world. Um, you know, just listening to your podcast week in and week out, you know, I've been inspired to kind of reach my full potential, and I'm not sure I'm doing that with my my current career. Well, let me share something with you. You know, there was a time I moved 11 times in five years, but at the end of the five years, mm-hmm. I was making 800% more than I was at the beginning of the five years. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I saw in your, in your note that you sent to me that you've got a girlfriend, et cetera. You know, I didn't get married till I was 30. And I moved, I, I, mm-hmm. I seeked opportunity. And, you know, I got to work in hotels and then nightclubs and then restaurants and then Italian restaurants and Chinese restaurants and resorts and food. And now I have a wealth of experience unlike anyone I've ever met uh, uh, because I wasn't confined by geography or anything else. Mm-hmm. I would jump at opportunity that provided me with growth. So I want to leave you with an interesting thought. When you do something in life and five years from now, five years passes, you're never going to regret what you did, Matthew. You're only going to regret what you didn't do. And if you think about your own Mm -hmm. life, think back five years ago. You don't regret the things that you did. You regret the things that you didn't do, just like you're regretting them now. So my advice to people always is don't allow fear to hold you back. If you haven't read my book, stop bullshitting yourself. You should. Because fear, uh, yeah, I'm in the, the middle of that is, right now. Yep, fear is one of the biggest excuses in that book, and we use it all the time. But whatever you're scared of or cautious about that's making you hold yourself back, understand millions of other people went forward, and they didn't get killed or shot or whatever it might be. I'm being a little facetious, but their lives weren't destroyed when they moved forward. So. Lives are destroyed when we're paralyzed. So my suggestion, start looking at opportunities in other places. Find something that excites you, buddy. And then when you find Mm -hmm. something that excites you, run to it with every ounce of energy that you have. Because excitement is hard to find in life. And I sense that you've lost that where you are. Good advice? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I I think you've hit the nail on the head there where, where, where I'm at. And, um, you know, I'm just ready for, for a big change, I think. Well, you're articulate, you're smart, you have a college degree. Uh, uh, um, 
there's a lot of opportunity out here, buddy, especially now post-tax cuts and the environment that we're in right now. There's companies looking to hire. There's growth opportunities, advancement opportunities. Anybody who's using an excuse to hold themselves back now shouldn't. This is the chance, buddy. Go for it. Oh, thank you so much, John. What a, what a pleasure it's been. Take care, uh, Matt. And I, just, luck, I hate to do this, but, but go Sox. <laughs> Take care, buddy. We've got to James on the line who works at a grocery store chain, and his boss is ordering all the wrong products. Hey, James. Hey, John. How's it going? Yeah, I want no, to understand this, James. So you're working at a grocery chain that runs a barbecue mm-hmm. smoker, and your boss orders more products that don't sell well and not enough of the products that does. And Correct. then he insists that it'll, it'll sell as a leftover. So you yes. know, I find that interesting uh, for two reasons. One, I know I'd much rather sell something when it's fresh than when it's a leftover. I got a much better chance of having a customer come back. Having it fresh versus a leftover, uh, uh, to me, and, I, and I'm, I hope you're recording this. If you're not, you should when you download it. And maybe play this to your boss because I'll talk to him for a moment. How's that, James? Sounds good to me. If I had a choice of selling a leftover or a fresh product, I'd sell the fresh product every time. Any manager who chooses to sell the leftover, in my view, is an idiot for two reasons. One, the leftover isn't as good. Two, the leftover is cheaper in price. So I I satisfy the guest less and I make less money doing it. Conversely, when they come into your store and they want to buy the things you don't have, then they don't come back. So both of those things will erode your customer flow, dissatisfy your customers, and reduce your revenue flow. So I would suggest to you, James, that any manager who made decisions like that was an idiot. Wow. There you go, buddy. I, I, yeah, I completely agree with you on that front because yeah. I, I, I can't suggest understand you why download you this podcast, so buddy, and play it to him and, and show Absolutely. him that you cared enough about your job to ask me that question. That would make you a great employee, buddy. Next. <laughs> <laughs> but, so my producer here, Casey, so I'm asking you, Casey, do you like the whole idea of me, uh, uh, you call, complain about your boss, and then I beat the hell out of your boss for you? What do you think? I think so. I like it, John. I think it's a great idea. Well, I don't want to beat bosses <laughs> up all day long, but a few more of those in the future might be pretty good. <laughs> Everybody's got a boss they want to beat up. Everybody. I bet. I bet they do. Everybody. Okay, so, John, we've got uh, Dan on the line. John, he wants to uh, some advice on leveling up his business. Uh, all hi, right, Dan. Dan. Thanks for taking my call. So you, I'm looking you at you're currently the GM and- of a custom screen printing business. And you've taken a, a, a leap of faith for a second job with a local entrepreneur. And Correct, yep. tell me this, tell me the story from there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I met a local entrepreneur here in, in Wisconsin, Aaron Armstrong, and his company, uh, Armstrong Ventures. Uh, he does a lot of business leadership training and coaching. Uh, we've had a lot of early success so far. Uh, we just kind of launched our uh, weekly podcast every Monday. Um, but our ultimate goal is to actually uh, go ahead and focus on this 100%. Uh, we each have our own day jobs. Uh, we really want to focus on speaking at, you know, local slash national conferences. And, uh, yeah, we're just kind of thinking of ideas how we can level it up and get in, continue to get in front of more people and, and more exposure. Uh, we've had a lot of content. Uh, we have a lot of great content already, and uh, we've had some great feedback uh, on people that, that really enjoy listening to what, what he has to say, and, and they're really improving their business and their everyday lives. So we're just kind of trying to get that next step up uh, for the future. Well, you know, I'm a public speaker, and I've been speaking for about 35 years. I'll do about 20, 25 speeches a year for big corporations and big events. And I was a public speaker earning considerable money as a speaker long before I was in television. So you don't need to be on TV to be a public speaker. So what you have is the dilemma of content without distribution. 
So when you want to build a business like you, like you're talking about, and I have, so I speak to you from experience here. First of all, there's about 12 to 15 speaking uh, um, agencies around the country that you need to do business with. You don't do business with one, you do business with them all. Two, you got to put together the proper videotapes, production materials, media kits, and everything uh, 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 to prove out your content and to show the quality of your presentation. And then you got to go to the meeting planning news and, and all of the various convention centers. You know, I'm, I'm, my offices are based in Las Vegas. So I have the list of every convention that comes in and out of Las Vegas, and my people sell to that list. Los Angeles is very close for me. So we have all the list of the conventions coming in and out of Los Angeles. We sell, uh, send materials to them. Phoenix is close to me. I do that too. I don't want to fly to New York for a speech, so I don't look for right, speeches right. In, in New York. So I look at it as a way of harvesting agencies and relationships that will give me distribution. A and once you have that distribution, you can get the content in front of a lot more people. That would be my advice to you. Great content doesn't always find an audience. And that's the biggest frustrating part of what, of what you know, the, the, the bridge that you're going to climb, Dan, is because the content okay. is great doesn't mean it'll be successful. Somehow, you have to make that content stand out in, in a very noisy environment. There's a lot of speakers out there. There's a lot of speaking agencies out there. A lot of people don't want to spend the money. They do it virally. They do it through internet. Uh, uh, so it's a very competitive business. You've got to have an edge, and the edge is distribution. I hope that helps. Awesome. Yeah, that helps a lot. I really appreciate it. Uh, keep up the good work. And like I said, you really you really helped change my mindset and, you know, uh, going after my goals and dreams. So I really appreciate that. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. And if anybody's interested, yep. then go to johntafford.com. There's information there you can click through about my speaking and the events and the conventions that I'm going to be speaking at. Also, hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Do it right now. Or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. And I love talking to the audience like we are now. So please email me, email me anytime at podcast at johntafford.com, podcast at johntafford.com, and you could be the next caller. Who's next, Casey? All right, uh, John, let's go over to Hollywood, California, out here yeah, in Hollywood. This is Ian. He wants your take on creative people. What is my take on creative people? So I'm going to read what you wrote me, Ian, so everybody can hear it. Okay, buddy? Okay. What is your take on creative people? I do hear you tell bar owners who want to invest in art to make money in the bar so they can invest and support the arts. But what about some of the craft people you work with? Are there any parallels you see? Successful creative types use what you've seen in the many businesses that you've helped. Well, you know, first of all, creativity is driven by money. Right, because you need money for materials, you need money for people to see it, to, to be able to market and all that kind of stuff. But money doesn't happen without creativity. And Ian, when people separate those two things or put the money before the creativity, that's a major mistake. Everything starts with an idea. Then drawing or sketching or planning that idea out. So creative people to me are the most fortunate in the world. So many people can be taught procedure. So many people can be taught language skills. So many people can be taught math. People can be taught engineering, mm -hmm. physics, medical science. Creativity is not taught. Creativity is, is God-gifted. And when you're surrounded by creative individuals, it's special. And the ideas fly like crazy. So to me, creativity must be respected. And it must, it must be nurtured. And I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, Ian, I was giving a speech in Singapore for Sheridan Asia Pacific. 
and it was called the Sheridan War College. And the GM of all the Sheridan hotels in the world were there, and I was giving a speech on entrepreneurism. And I was talking about how to be an entrepreneur. You got to take risk. You got to step forward. You got to be creative. You got to embrace new ideas. And the president of Sheridan stood up and told the story. I won't tell his name on, on, on radio, but he told the story about a guy who was an executive for a major, major company, a copy machine company. And he goes to the CEO and he says, listen, I want us to go on a PC computer business. And the CEO gives them like $100 million. He develops the computer, the package, the boxing. They ship it. They market it. And it's a complete failure. And they close down the computer division. And now this guy who created this failure is called to the CEO's office. And he walks in expecting to get fired. And he says to the CEO, well, I brought us in a computer business. I designed it. I packaged it. I sold it. And I completely failed. I'm guessing you want me to resign. And the CEO said to him, resign. You're not going anywhere, buddy. We just put $100 million in your education. And that guy became the CEO of that company a few years later. The point is don't fear mistakes. Don't fear creativity. Creativity is is the lifeblood, the energy by which everything happens. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, I, I really wish more people had your viewpoint on it. There are some people that, that really don't know where to start when it comes to creativity. And um, you, I find <clears throat> I wind up front-loading a lot of education and hand-holding just to get the certain processes to kind of get what you just very eloquently describe. So when you're when you're going out there, John, and you're seeking someone who's creative to work with, is it mm-hmm. about the portfolio with you? Because I've, I've read about the way you interview people, the way you look at personality. Are you also considering that when you're going to work with a creative person? Um, I am. You know, I'll, I'll look at a lot of things from body language to their patience, right? Because great creativity mm-hmm. takes patience. Sometimes it's not always shotgunned. I'll look at their language. I'll look at their work. But it isn't the work. The work is is very much generated by environment. So if somebody does decent work and they're reasonably creative, I believe if they come to work for me, I can make them very creative because I believe I can create an environment by which I I can have their creativity really grow and nurture it well. So Mm -hmm. I'm very much about the connection and, and the ability of one's mind to really wander. And if their mind doesn't wander enough, then their creativity won't wander enough. So the portfolio, sure, I can see the quality of work in a portfolio for sure, Ian, but I can also see how far they've wandered in that portfolio. And that means Mm -hmm. a lot to me. I want to hire creative people who are free to wander in their own mind and find new approaches Mm -hmm. to things. Wow. That's great. And John, I got to just say thank you. I'm watching the series from... Uh, backwards. So I, I, I'm watching nine, but I'm actually going backwards through the older seasons just to uh, watch it again. It really holds up, and I, I really love the changes you've made to the new, the subtle changes of seeing just a different format. And I just hope you keep going as long as you can, man. Really appreciate you, and, and thank you. Uh, well, thank you. I'll tell you some news I haven't told anybody publicly yet. I just signed to do a bunch more bar rescues. So uh, uh, we'll be back Great. in production right around the first of the year. So we'll, we'll, you'll be seeing more of them, buddy. Nice to talk to you. Let's go over to Kevin. He's in Wisconsin and uh, has a question about uh, how do you stay motivated when you're feeling burnt out? Man, that's that's – you know, Kev, that's uh, one of the toughest things to, to, to deal with. And, and I don't have an answer for you other than to tell you that somehow I keep going. I just came back from a media tour in New York last week. 
I did, I don't know, four or five serious radio channels. I did three segments on Fox. I did CNBC. Uh, uh, um, I did consulting work at Yankee Stadium. I then went and did a whole bunch of other projects and things while I was in New York. And I didn't stop. I went about 20 hours a day. And, and I'm not 30 years old anymore. So the fourth day, Kevin, I'm in a fog. I can hear it. I can feel it around me. That's how exhausted I am. I wind up getting into autopilot and I just keep going. I'm not able to stop. So I just have learned how to pace myself and keep going. And the biggest frustration for me, and you're obviously an astute guy about what you wrote here, Kevin, is how do I grow my celebrity brand? How do I continue to make my TV shows and create all the content that builds my brand, and my brand is obviously a very important asset to me. But yet, how do I still b- build resorts in Tennessee and help my other clients and, and do the other work that I do? I'm sitting in my offices here in, in Las Vegas. We have a bunch of clients and work that we do that has nothing to do with television. That's the challenge for me. A- and traveling and keeping it all together is the challenge. It isn't the burnout. I'm fortunate that I, I just don't burn out very often. And uh, uh, when you do what you love, even when you're burnt, you just keep going. Not a great answer, but it's the only one I got for you, buddy. I just have found a way to keep going. And something else I think is important. I think, and I've actually said this to my wife, Nicole, Kevin, sometimes I'm scared to stop because if I stop, how the hell do I get going again? And I think people like Don Rickles and older comedians and people that continue to work till the day they die, I think they sort of take that mentality. I mean, look at the Rolling Stones, for Christ's sakes. They're about to go on tour again. I'm guessing they're going to reel them out at this point. But why do they continue? Because that's what they do. So I'm guessing, buddy, this is what I do. All right. Thanks, John. I kind of, I have to agree with you. I'm kind of in the same boat right now. I've got five different side projects I'm working on outside of my full-time job. And it's, I'm much more motivated to work on those than I am to, you know, work my full-time job. And it's, at night, it's just, I've got this fire inside me that just keeps making me go and go and go. And even, you know. Oh, that's special, man. Don't kill the fire, buddy. Fuel it. (laughs) No, so sometimes it actually kind of hurts my uh, sleep because I just can't turn my brain off. I just want to keep going and going and going. And it just kind of gives me like an extra boost of adrenaline throughout the whole entire day. Okay, I saw in your note that you wanted to tell me a little story about Campbell's Irish Pub, which I remember I rescued in Milwaukee, ooh, I'm guessing three, four years ago. And and Guppy came and did a back to the bar with me, I remember. And uh, I had sent somebody in about two years ago, and they were doing pretty well. And I heard that the owner was selling it, was last I heard. You got a scoop for me? Um, I recently did hear that they were still selling. I don't think they've found a buyer, but I actually have a little more of an interesting tidbit for you that kind of hopefully will provide you with some value about the work that you did there. I remember yeah. when the episode came out, I was watching it with my dad, actually. And when they, when they brought up the bar, my dad got really excited and really kind of giddy, and I was a little confused by as to why. Well, actually, that bar back in the 1980s was a bar called Ralph Richards Pub. And my dad would frequently go to that bar, you know, like 87, 88-ish. And oddly enough, my mom actually worked at the bar. That's the bar that they met at, and they've been married for the past 26 and a half years. And just to see the excitement in him and reliving those memories of being in that bar while he was watching the episode was something truly spectacular. And for me, for my family, and probably from anyone else who's ever been in a bar or knowing someone who's been in a bar that you have rescued, 
thank you for allowing us to relive those memories. And not only that, but to continue making memories at those bars. Ah, thanks, buddy. You know, I tell people all the time, the second public building ever built in America was a bar. The first was a church. And there weren't city halls then or hotel meeting rooms. Most contracts and businesses and declaration of independence and stuff were done in bars. And when you think about that, they were called public houses then. When you think about all the marriages and couples and business deals and corporations and everything that happened in bars, I think your parents are a great example of it. And that's where a bar really adds to a community. And in this case, you wouldn't be here without that bar, right, Kev? So <laughs> – Oh, there's care, no way buddy. to be here without that bar. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Take care, buddy. All right. Take care, John. Thank you. I love doing this podcast because I love talking to you. That's my favorite part of doing this. And honestly, that's why I do it. But having a guest like Terry on who can share his story of a kid with a dummy who's now has a foundation that's generating millions of dollars in money to help all sorts of charities and efforts. Fact of the matter is, Terry is a really powerful inspiration to me. You guys, when you call and we talk about your lives, you can inspire me too. So please send me an email to podcast at johntafford.com. Let me know what you want to talk about and we'll talk about it together and we can share the story with others and maybe inspire them. This was a great episode. I love Terry. I love talking to all my callers. And make sure you go to Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app. Subscribe and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. I'll talk to you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. Here are some useful car tips that you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Pretty weird, right? Well, here's another tip you might also not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before they buy. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience, some features not available in all states.